Uh, when you're hearing David, when you're watching him live or hearing his recorded music, that's him. That's what he sounded like. If you don't know of his music outside of I Think I Love You, you really do need to go a little bit deeper in his catalog. You will say, I had no idea. David always seemed to be able to get those people to be either on his music or he was on their music, which to me speaks a lot about his talent. He was a lot more than, than the facade that I think a lot of people on the outside saw. The musicians knew David. And they knew he was a lot more than that. You know that they regarded him as a very talented musician. This is the David Cassidy Connections Podcast with your host, Louise Poynton. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the David Cassidy Connections I'm Louise Poynton, and my guest today is musician and author Hal Eisenberg. He played in rock bands as a teenager before working in advertising, but the lure of entertaining always pulled him back. In 2003, his Beach Boys cover band opened for David in Atlanta, where he observed how David was trapped in the teen idol stardom, which was both a blessing and a curse. In our conversation, Hal offers his analysis of the price of fame so often paid, why he believes David's talent as a singer has been unrecognised for too long, and what needs to be done to validate what he describes as his immense talent. We talk about the influence on Hal's career from his heroes, Felix Cavallari and Eric Carmen. He offers his analysis of the music industry today, and why he is looking forward to getting back on stage this summer with his tribute band, Brotherhood. Hey, how are you, Louise? Good I'm, to see you. I'm fine. It's good to see you. How are you doing? I'm glad we could finally connect. Oh, absolutely. It's been so long. Well, we're such big, famous people, you know. It's it's oh. hard to, to get our skill. Your people and my people, you know, it's... Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. They've been talking to each other and, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I, I really appreciate you um, asking me to be a part of your podcast. It's pretty cool that you um, thought of me. I'm, I'm not on the caliber of, say, a Felix Cavallari, that's for sure. Your hero. <laughs> yeah, he's a cool guy. I got to say, I never met him, but he's a cool guy. This other business that I have with my wife, um, it's a, an after-school program, and uh, it's located in schools. And anyway, one of the parents uh, I was talking to at the end of the day, and I, we got on talking about music. I don't remember why. And he said, yeah, my uncle's in the music business. And I said, really? I said, what does he do? He says, well, he... He's, he, you know, he, he was a writer and, and singer in a band called The Rascals. I said, what? I said, who's your uncle? He says, Felix Cavallari. I said, oh, my God, you're kidding. He said, no, he comes in every once in a while. You know, we go out to Italian meal and he complains that uh, that, that meal is not really Italian and that we don't know what Italian is and good cooking and all that. I said, you know, if he ever comes back in town, if you just call me if I could just talk to him you know it's, yeah. it's like oh he, he's just you know Uncle Felix to everybody but you oh. know I'll ask never happened of course but that's pretty cool yeah they I don't think they realize how much knowledge they have about the industry and their experiences a lot of these people like David who who got their start as a teen idol mm -hmm. uh, because that's where they were positioned and then for the rest of their lives fought that what people perceive the perception of them versus who they really felt they were uh, must have been extremely frustrating when I was about eight or nine years old I had a cousin who was a teenager at the time this is probably 62 63 mm -hmm. and she was just the biggest Bobby Rydell fan uh, she uh, everywhere she went she, her her walls had his posters all over it. Uh, she played nothing but his music. And I distinctly remember as a little kid, she would play his music and she'd scream. Cause you know, she'd, you know, she'd scream. And, and my uncle, her, her father would get so mad at her and he would, he pulled the needle off the record and said, that's enough. You've listened to it 30 times. That's enough. He says, oh, but Bobby Rydell, he's so dreamy. And it would just go on forever. Mm. Um, 
I, you know, uh, well, you know, I told you about my uh, involvement with, with David. Uh, I was, you know, it was very brief, but I was fortunate enough to, to, to meet him and work with him as briefly as I did. And I, I really think I saw a microcosm of David um, in that short period of time I was there. I saw the frustrations he was going through, the inner struggle. You and I have talked about this, but for people who don't know, uh, I was in a band and we uh, were local regional band and we got the opportunity to open for David Cassidy. Uh, this was had to be about 15 years ago now, my guess, roughly. It was an outdoor venue in the Atlanta area, United States. And uh, it was not a big venue. I think it held maybe 2,500 to 3,000 people. And uh, we got there in the afternoon to do a sound check. We were stopped by the stage manager because we were about to put our, our equipment on stage and set up to do the sound check. And he said, well, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to do a sound check until later and possibly not at all. And uh, he said, the reason is, is that uh, David uh, fired his band the night before and has brought in all new musicians from Las Vegas overnight, flew them in overnight, all their equipment. And these musicians had not heard his music before. They were actually learning his music that day of the show. You know, my first response was, wow. And uh, why did he do this? And he said there were a lot of things going on with the current band he was in. There was some tussles going on, some disagreements. And he just decided he wanted a fresh crew. So that right there uh, was like, I'd never heard of that before. Anybody having a show and bringing in a brand new band that had never heard his music before uh, or performed with him. So that alone let me know that he was going through a lot of things at the time. <clears throat> we were since told that we were supposed to address him as Mr. Cassidy and that we were not supposed to <clears throat> look him directly in the eyes if we saw him, if he was riding on the elevator. We, the, the way this was set up, there were two green rooms. There was one on the first level and one on the second level. Ours was on the second level, so we had to ride the elevator to get to it. And we heard that, that David was upset that we had this green room on the second level because that's the one he wanted. So we said, hey, we're, we're good. We'll take, you know, whatever one you want, you can have. And they just said, well, if you're, if you, if you're getting on the elevator and you see him, please do not get on the elevator. He wants to ride alone. So all those things came up, you know, and, and we, we played with other people before, open for other famous people before. And we were hoping that we would uh, get some pictures with him like we had done with some of the others, like Davy Jones or the Monkees. But um, that was not to be. I, I, I did briefly get to say hello to him and get a hello back. And um, the odd part of the show, well, one of them was when he got on stage, the first thing he said was, our group was, our group was named Surf's Up. It was, uh, we were a, a Beach Boys tribute band. Mm. So he, he came on stage and he said, uh, Surf's Up is right. Um, this place does not know, any, know anything about air conditioning or fans. Now, I'd never spoken. Nobody had ever spoken to him. But he was trying to indicate that we were complaining about the venue, which we, we did not. So it was just things like that. He struck, when we uh, were about to go on stage, his people struck half our song list and said that David said he didn't want us singing some of these songs. And then at the very last second, as we were about to go on, they changed your mind. They said, yeah, you can play whatever you want. David said, it's okay. So there was a lot of things. Yeah, I didn't quite grasp mm -hmm. all of it, but in hindsight now, I see where he had a lot of things going on. Um, one of the members of our band's wives had, a mag had the famous Life magazine with him on the cover. Yeah. And um, while he was... Uh, doing his monologue, she ran up to him on stage and handed him the magazine and asked if he would autograph it, which he did. But then he held it up to the crowd. And he said, look at this. I look like a girl. <laughs> and, you know, and the crowd, of course, laughed. But, you know, the thing is, that was, that was his, his sex appeal, his charm when he was younger. I mean, he had that mass appeal that he appealed to everyone. And he was a good looking guy. I mean, there was no doubt about it. I think he was trying to just be self-effacing, but he, in, in reality, it, it, to me, it re, re in, uh, instilled the fact that he was trying to say, I'm not that guy. I'm a serious musician. And yet his, 
his entire show was based around his hits because that's what people wanted to hear. And that's what he was there for. And he knew that. But from the body of his work, I'm one of his biggest fans. I loved everything that he did. My influences growing up were, you know, the Beatles, uh, the Beach Boys, uh, Love and Spoonful, Mamas and Papas, Birds, all the English invasion groups, the, uh, you know, the Doobies, uh, Doobie Brothers, Paul Revere and the Raiders. And, and he was on that list because he was one of these people uh, that I could see there was more to him. Now, when he first came out, it was, oh, yeah, he's that guy on the Partridge family, you know. Oh, he's that guy that's singing from the Partridge family. But not too many people let him get out of that box. And that was what was so frustrating. I, on the other hand, just looked at him and said, this guy's got talent. He's got a, such an incredible vocal range. Uh, I just, you know, I, I appreciate him. I don't think a lot of people did or, or gave him the opportunity. However, from what you've said and, and you've shown in your book, a lot of musicians did see his ability and wanted to play with him. I mean, he performed with and recorded with a lot of people that I was unaware of it at the time, but he certainly um, had their ear, like Felix Cavallari. And, um, you know, you mentioned to me uh, something that you pointed something out to me I did not know. Uh, that he sang uh, background vocals on the Doobie Brothers, taking it to the streets. I, that's news to me because I, he's not credited on the album. And so I had no idea that he did that. But that's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, because Michael McDonald, one of the first songs he ever wrote, appeared on David's Dreams album. Ah, before he uh, became famous with the Doobie yes. Brothers and yeah. got on the map. Completely. That's pretty cool. That's a cool story. Yeah. Um, and then I started, you know, reading and doing some research on it. After you told me that, I I found out that he he had a song called um, was it Get It to the Street or something like that. Getting it in the street. Getting it in the street, and that was with Jerry Buckley uh, from America. Yes. And then I come to find out that uh, Jerry Buckley and and one of the other members of America, uh, he was on one of their albums as well. That's right. He uh, was on their Hideaway album. Oh, okay. Uh, one of my favorite albums of all time, I've told you this before, but because this is your show, I, I figured I'd say it again, is uh, is The Higher They Climb. Uh, that's one of my, not just my favorite album of his, it's just one of my favorite albums. I just, I like everything on that album. Uh, There's so many covers that he did uh, that I think are the best covers, like um, uh, Bebopalula, I Write the Songs, Darlin' yeah. of the Beach Boys, where he has Flo and Eddie of the Turtles singing background on that. And of course, on I Write the Songs, he's got uh, Carl Wilson and his angelic voice behind him. And of course, the album was produced by Bruce Johnston of the Beach Boys. So you have all those people involved and all those people are, are very highly regarded in the music industry. And he was always, David always seemed to be able to get those people to be either on his music or he was on their music, which to me speaks a lot about his talent. Mm. that he was a lot more than than the facade that I think a lot of people on the outside saw. Do you think he I was seeking validation as a serious musician by working with such esteemed colleagues? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, the fact that he was bottled originally in his career and sold as, as a teen idol boxed him in, although he could never break out of that mold from the public standpoint. The musicians knew David, and they knew he was a lot more than that. And that's obvious when you hear this, like this album, and you hear other songs that he's on, you know that they regarded him as a very talented musician. It's frustrating. I can't imagine what he went through. I think they all get that stigma. They, they love the limelight at first because it gets them noticed. And then for the rest of their lives, they fight that image. Because they're saying, hey, I'm, I'm much more than this. I'm not just a teen idol. But it, that's true in a lot of professions. You know, like uh, in the acting, if you're an actor and you try to become a singer, they go, oh, yeah, but you're, a, you're an actor. You're not a singer. So how then did Frank Sinatra break the mold? You know, my mother loved him as a singer and my father appreciated him as an actor. Uh, he had that rare talent and he also had a, a lot of connections. So I, I have a feeling that had a lot to do with it. But, but some of them, I think he was able to 
first of all, get himself established. And then from then on, it was his talent that took him from there. But, but he, mm. he had to have the contacts. You know, it's all about who you know. Sure. And he was one of the originals, you know. I mean, we're going back, way back. So, yeah, he's, he, he's one of those rare guys that could do it all and was able to shed his image as just a, a, um, a crooner. Is there and, a and political game that you have to play in the music industry these days? Ah, geez, the music industry is so different. I mean, I only know it from my standpoint, and I'm I'm really on the outer edge. But the music, the state of music today, um, it, it's interesting because uh, a hit today is mostly driven by the internet. You know, it's 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 all driven by a short tension spans, and and because of that. Uh, the, the beauty of it is anybody can be famous. You know, Andy Warhol once said, or it's been paraphrased by him, that everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And it truly fits in today's world of, of YouTube and TikTok. You know, you, you, all you have to do is get on there mm-hmm. and, and you can all of a sudden garnish thousands of thousands of fans. The problem is, even if your music is great, they don't have the music machine anymore the way it used to be where the, the label would be behind you and be able to promote you because nobody buys music anymore. I mean, for the most part, it's all on Spotify or it's all on Sirius XM. Uh, I heard an interesting story recently about a guy, uh, a, a famous writer, uh, songwriter, musician who uh, was recognized by having a million streams on um, Spotify last year for one song, one of his songs. And you know how much he made? $38. All he made for a thousand streams. And that's the problem with the music industry today. The money can't be made with the music. It has to be made somewhere else. And that's usually touring. And thanks to what happened with COVID, they can't even do that anymore. At least they couldn't for the last year. It's, it's just starting to thaw. So in answer to your question, yes, there's always politics involved. In the, in the old days, there was uh, a lot of moolah and cash under the table to get your records played on the radio those days are gone because it's all automated now and it's it's all done by science and tracking to see which songs they think are going to uh, be a hit and but the problem is most of these people are like comets uh they they're shooting stars they don't last long at all because of the attention span of the public and there's so much coming at you all the time there's not enough time for an artist to establish the ones that do, it's so rare. You know, you can count on your hands how many artists today are recognized uh, musicians because they are so many that aren't. And most of them that are were able to pre-establish themselves before today, today's world. Right. You know, nowadays, if you get famous, like, like a Billy Ellish, for example, the trick is going to be how to hold on to that fame because it's all about image as well as the way you look, as well as the way you sound and, and your talent. In my, that's my opinion anyway. I mean, you know, and, and at least the musicians of the old days had the ability to uh, record a song, promote the album, and then go on tour. Now it's just go on tour <laughs> and, and hope somebody buys your music. You know, and doesn't stream it for a nickel, you know. I just wanted to take you back to when a few minutes ago when you spoke about The Higher They Climb. Did you see that as a concept album and that David was trying to put a message out there? I do. I did. Uh, I I think it was David's idea. First of all, you know, if you see the album cover, uh, it's like him grasping for a star. You know, he's like he's like floating in the air and, and, and about to come down. And um, I think that's what metaphorically he was saying is I was up there. I was a rock and roll star. And now look at me. And this is my life. So I do think a lot of it was biographical, autobiographical. And do you and- think it was a message to those who followed in his footsteps? Beware of what you wish for. Yeah, very well. That's very well put. I, I do think that uh, he might have been sending a message out to to the future teen idols that be careful what you wish for, because this is what happened to me mm. and the box I'm in. Yeah. It's funny, though, to me, it's kind of ironic, at least in my mind, that the the album that he that he did that points that irony out is also to me the album that shows how diversified he was. His vocals on a lot of those songs outshine some of the originals. His 
his styling is David. You, you can tell when you hear David Cassidy. You can tell when you hear his music. It's very identifiable. His voice is very identifiable. So in all his frustration throughout his life, which drove him to the demons that he had, the reality is he did establish himself. He was a talented artist. And how sad it is and how typical it is that a musician of his stature only becomes recognized after you're gone. You know, that happens so many times because people actually take the time to stop and say, well, what did he do in his life? Oh, I didn't know he did that. Oh, he sang with that person. He recorded with, oh, I didn't know that. And that's when you get to, unfortunately, get the recognition. It happens to a lot of them, uh, unfortunately. You mentioned about at the concert where you were opening for him, how he looked at the cover of the Life magazine, you know, and said, oh, I look like a girl. And he often mm-hmm. said, oh, doesn't she look pretty? Mm-hmm. Do you think that for many stars like him who have been the most popular person on the planet, the centre of a young teenage girl's fantasy, let's not forget for young men, he was the person they wanted to be. He helped give them their identity. But right. is it right for people like him and, and others before him and since, by saying that about themselves are they really being quite offensive to their fans because that is the image that a young girl fell in love with? Who is it for them to make a judgment call that they can easily dismiss the type of person they were because of the way they looked? The songs and him and the image really mattered. From 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 the grown woman who was a young girl at the time that idolized him, she sees that as, you know, almost like an insult to her, you know, but, but I also, what I see is the inner demon of the, of the artist. That's David. I see David fighting with himself. When he says something like that, it's his way of saying, I'm not that guy. I might've been that guy, but I, I'm not that guy. I don't want to be that guy. And damn it. I am still that guy because everybody knows me as that guy. It's just a, to me, it's a frustration, a self effacing way of recognizing the fame, being angered that he's famous for being the teen idol, but at the same time realizing that's why you were able to make it in the industry to start with. I, I see both points of view. I, I see where the, the young girl would, who's now a grown woman would say, well, that's not very nice of him to say because, you know, I, I idolized him. I love the way he looked. I, I didn't think he looked like a girl. I, I think he looked, you know, very handsome. And, mm. and he's on the other side going, I realize you're looking at me like that and you're reminiscing about me, but, but damn it, I'm somebody else now. You know, I don't want to be that guy, but hey, let's revisit 1972. You know, it's yeah. like a, yeah. like a catch 22. It's like you, you can't win. Because as you get older, I mean, I know from my own personal experience of going to see him in concert when he was older, I didn't really want to hear the old songs. I wanted to hear new material. I wanted to hear other things that he he could do. I would really park the Partridge Family music to one side. You know, that was... Well, that's interesting that you could do that. I I have a feeling many of his fans could not. Uh, But but I do... Music, don't get me wrong. I love the music and the production of it. And the songs that they were given, he just painted such a beautiful picture with his beautiful voice. But I think it held him back over the years because I think he felt obliged to sing those songs to fulfill the demands and desires of the audience. There's, there's different levels of fandom. There really are. Oh, yeah. It's like I, I play in a band right now, a, a Doobie Brothers tribute band uh, called Brotherhood. And when, when we play, the Doobies have maybe 12 really good hit songs. And then they have semi-hit songs and then they have deep cuts. So when we perform, if we perform a two-hour show, obviously we've got to play just about everything. So we get the people at the crowd at the end saying, you know, I love the hits. You know, I I didn't know this one. and I never heard that one. And then we get other people that go, oh, I can't believe you played that song because I haven't heard that song. And and I don't think even the doobies play it live. So there's all kinds of fans out there, you know, Mm -hmm. I think you're the fan 
who really delved deeper into his catalog and would have loved to hear him sing other things besides the top five or ten songs that everybody knew. I mean, I love it when he did, did sing the songs, but I would think, well, no, that isn't where you are now. If you're going <laughs> to sing them, sing them as a... He would have loved to know he should have met you because... <laughs> no, I'm serious because you're the kind of fan he wanted. He wanted people like you that appreciated him as, a, as an artist above and beyond what he was known for. I mean, I, there's that's a group... Rare. That's really rare. Well, there is a group of us who have been campaigning for, for years to have his previously unheard back catalogue release because we know for, uh, for his Dreams album, there were 50 tracks laid down. I so, wonder who owns the rights. That's, well, that's, that, that's, that's it. That's key, key to everything. But there, are, there will be so much that was put down in the studio with the Partridge family alone, you know, different versions, alternate versions, songs that have never been released. The David Cassidy connections with Louise Poynton cherish the legacy. You were able to get this fantastic book together. I mean, it is, it is I mean, if, if you're listening to this and you have not purchased Louise Poynton's book, Cherish, a legacy of love you've got to get this book it is beyond what you think it is your your first thought is oh it's just a little book about david and in his past and you know some reminiscing it is so much more than that it is a it's a coffee table book because it's so beautiful for start with the the colors and the pictures and the it's incredible i i'm put me on your pr team i think that you. you should definitely get out and buy that book Bless you, Hal. No, really, it is. It's really something else. I've seen other um, books, you know, dedicated or or written about other artists, but I don't think I've ever seen anything that in depth or that beautiful visually to mm. look at. I mean, that's what really makes the book is the colors you chose. I remember you on Facebook. You showed uh, like step by step in different segments yeah. of how you went about choosing it. And uh, it's it's just a very eye catching, and it's the kind of book you can pick up. You don't have to read it from A to Z. You can pick it up and just open it in the middle and find something interesting. Yeah. And that's what to me makes a good book. Yeah. You know, and it's perfect for you people that have short attention spans who <laughs> just want to read like one page and then close the book and come back and read another page. That's it's right. perfect because every time you come back to it, you will read something new. Something exactly. Different. And you're going to open it up and you're going to say, I had no idea that artist worked with, with David. Yeah. Or, wow, what a cool story about this person's experience with him and how they met him. And it's just, yeah. it's just great. In, Do you in, have any idea that it would take you this trip that you've been on when you first started to do no. this book? No. Did you have any idea? Not at all. You know, I started looking at the book in 2014 never for one moment thinking David wouldn't be here. And I remember saying to one of my friends, if he was to read this, it might save him. I agree with that. There's a right. lot more substance to him as a singer, as an actor, as a songwriter. He would have loved your book. He would have. He would have loved and your book. It's a great it book. turned into um, a celebration of, of his life. And, and it is. It's a, it's a labor of love from mm. you. And, and I, I honestly think that book itself kind of unites all the David Cassidy fans. If you're, if you're a casual fan or if you're a deep fan that, that goes much more into his catalog and you're going to appreciate this book regardless. I think he's, I'll bet David's up there right now, smiling down and at you because of the work you put into this book, because mm -hmm. it really does encapsulate all that he was from the casual fan to the deep fan to the musicians who admired him and worked with him. It's mm. all there in that book. Thank you very much, Hal. Thank you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You're making me blush. I will always toot your horn because um, I, was take, I was truly taken back when I got my copy. I just, I did not expect it to be as in-depth and as beautiful as it is. And it's, I hope you do more. I, I hope you do some other artists. I don't know if you'll have the passion that you had or have for David, but if you ever do any others, uh, I want to know about it because right. I think it's really cool. I'm not the only one who's written books because you've written a book as well, haven't you? Yeah. Overnight Sensation. 
I did. I did. Can you talk us through where the idea and the characters came from for it? Give us a brief synopsis of of what it's about. Well, briefly, it's about a a 15-year-old boy uh, who uh, one day is cleaning out his basement because his parents made him. And he he stumbles on an old box of pictures uh, and and paper. and, And one of the pictures is a rock band from the 70s. Uh, it's obviously they got the long hair and they're posing and and uh, he realizes that one of the guys in the band is his dad and and his dad never talked about this part of his life so he confronts his dad about the picture and his dad begrudgingly tells him about the fact that he was in a band that was one of these near famous bands they ended up touring uh, with a couple of big stars of the day like Aerosmith and they had a, a minor hit or two. Then he trails off. He doesn't want to talk about it. So the the 15-year-old the boy, Jonah, he, he convinces his dad to uh, put the band back together just for fun. They record a song in their basement. And he takes the song and sends it to some friends and says, doesn't tell them it's his dad. And says, hey, what do you think about this? Well, they think it's pretty cool and so cool that one of them sends it to a radio station and pretends it's his band. Uh, he's just, you know, thinking, or he's not thinking at all. Well, in today's world, you know, all these radio stations are connected all over the world. And this song accidentally gets into a national playlist and becomes an overnight sensation, which is the name of the book. And then for the rest of the book, the boys and the dad try to reconcile while they're, why they are letting the lie go on. The boys are doing it because they're just caught up in it and they think it's really cool mm. until it spins way out of control. The father is trying to relive his past and rectify things that made him get out of the music business to start with. So that's basically what it is. Now, I, how I got the idea, I've been in bands all my life. I told you I was in a Doobie Brothers tribute band now, but I've been playing since I was about 15 years old. And I have two boys uh, who are now in their 20s. But back in the day, I would read to them. Their rooms were across the hall from each other. So I would sit in a chair between their rooms when they were little and read books to them so they would go to sleep. I must have read a thousand books to them over the years. And and I was in advertising. I wrote and produced radio and television commercials. And uh, so I, I did that all the time. And I thought, you know, I could write this. I could write better than this. And I thought it would be so easy to write young adult novel. And it was the hardest thing I ever did. It took me seven years and five rewrites and finally got it out. <laughs> so that's really, that was the incentive was the fact that I wanted to write a book that I could read to my kids, just like I was reading to them all these other books. And I had the musical connection. So that's, that's how that came about. What was the message you wanted to get across? The same thing you brought up a little while earlier, and that is, be careful what you wish for. These boys, uh, they wanted to be famous more than anything else in the world. And that's exactly what happened to them. But then the fame caught up with them to the point where they were living a lie. And they didn't know how to get out of that lie. And you'll have to read the book to find out how it ends. Mm -hmm. But it's a good ending. And the, the point is, the point is, you really don't know you know, what you think you know until you're actually in it. And it brings us back to David, I think, because I think David, what he really wanted was to be a star. He wanted to be a rock and roll star in the worst way. And that's what happened. He became a rock star in the worst way, became an idol, a teen idol that boxed him in. And then for the rest of his life, he tried to break out of that box. And what I think he never realized was, at least I don't think so. I I don't know him, but or knew him, but I think he did break out of that box. And I think he broke out of that box. The proof of the pudding is your book, because you can see the love and the respect that he had from fans, non-famous and famous alike, which proves that he really did make it in the music industry. And he really did break out of that box and make a name for himself. He just didn't realize it while he was on this earth. And that's the sad part. So many people have said exactly that to me. People who knew him, people who didn't know him, they've all said the same thing. He never knew how much respect he had from within the industry and within the fan base. So, you know, the lesson I guess is for the people that are still on this planet, if, if you think somebody is, is good, somebody has talent it doesn't have to have talent if you just think they're a good person tell them you let them know 
that that they're that they have value because that's really i think what we're all looking for we're all looking for recognition and value and people that are famous or want to be famous that's their goal look at me recognize me that's what they're that's what they're going for and and the problem is i think the most most people today that want to be famous are just not prepared for it uh, they don't realize and in today's world of sudden fame like in my book, the, the problem is it's going to happen so fast or could happen so fast. You might get what you wished for and then wished you didn't. I mean, we only have to look at the traumas that the likes of Britney Spears are going through at the moment. Well, yeah, that's a good example. And who knows what, what to believe? True. Yeah, that child stars usually does not end well. Mm. You know, you can, you can probably count on one hand how many child stars that were stable enough to weather the storm and come out the other end and still be okay. You know, like, uh, was it the, the singer writer, Debbie Gibson in the eighties, she managed to come out on pretty much unscathed. And she typically now tries to tell the teens of today what to look out for. And, you know, from your experience, would things have been different in David's career if his original recording of I write the songs, which was subsequently made more famous by Barry Manilow, as we know, mm -hmm. if yeah. his version had been given the airplay on the radio in the States that it deserved, would things have shifted a little bit differently for him? Would there have been more acceptance? And is his well, version superior to Barry Manilow's? Well, I'm prejudiced. I'm going to say, yes, I, I do think it's, it's definitely superior. Uh, and, and just the fact that he recorded it before Manilow means that that was really the derivative version. Uh, Manilow took it and, you know, God bless him, had a number one hit and got, got on the map with it. Um, but I felt that his, his version was, was more generic um, pop star sounding overproduced. While, while I think David's came from the heart because David's just sounded like David was singing about himself. Yes. You know, uh, and how ironic, uh, before I get to your answer, the answer to your question, how ironic that Barry Manilow, his biggest hit was I Write the Songs and he didn't write the song. That's you know, kind of ironic. A lot of people don't know that, that Bruce Johnston actually wrote yeah. that song. Yeah. And of course, he produced David's version. And he produced David's version, exactly. Mm. But to answer your question, you know, I would like, in my mind, I would like to say, yes, it would have changed things. But my heart says probably not because they would have just said, oh, that's David Cassidy from the Partridge family. How cute. I don't think no matter what David did, <laughs> he could have. I mean, I, Lord knows he tried. I saw him uh, in Vegas for his Vegas show uh, with Sheena Easton. Um, this was like mid-90s or so. And uh, if you didn't know who he was, you would have thought, man, that guy's talented out the wazoo. So the, the problem wasn't that, that he wasn't talented. The problem was that he was labeled. So he might have had a huge hit with it. And who knows? Yeah. Maybe it would have helped steer him, his career away from that. I mean, people have done that before. It's been done. So it's anybody's guess, but it just yeah. wasn't meant to be. So can you tell me how someone with an advertising background ends up in the music business? <laughs> I don't know. I think it goes hand in hand. You know, I was in music since I was a teen and then I was a DJ for years. I DJed in clubs all in the Atlanta area. And uh, so music was always in, in my blood. And then, like I stated earlier, it's, it, it's, you have that musicians have this thing about, you know, obviously they want to be admired and listened to and looked at because that's why they're on stage. You know, I mean, that's, that's part of the process is you like the recognition. Most of the rock stars today that were big in the 70s, why are they touring? A lot of them are touring because, well, they need the money, but a lot of them are touring because they still like the high of the, of the fame, of the adulation they get when they're on the stage. You know, bands like the Beach Boys in Chicago and the Doobie Brothers, they've been touring for 50 plus years. I don't think they really need the money. It's possible. I mean, who, who wants to turn it down? But at the same time, I think they, they enjoy the adulation. I <clears throat> was in advertising because I liked, uh, I found that I liked to write the commercials and produce the commercials and even voice the commercials more so than I did 
like placing the advertising time, which is how I got started initially in advertising is I worked for some radio stations and I was placing radio time. <clears throat> but I'd go in to the studio and I'd say, we need to write this commercial. And they go, oh, okay, I'll, I'll hammer something out. And the commercial was horrible. And I thought, you know, I could write this. And so I started writing commercials and I thought, you know, I, I really like this side of the business. I, I think I'm better at writing them uh, than I am at selling them. So that's really how it all got started for me. And then I ended up doing, you know, like I said, doing voiceover work. I, I produced and wrote a lot of television commercials. I'd write myself in every once in a while, but for the most part, I just like being behind the camera and, right. and putting it all together. Yeah. Were there any well-known advertising campaigns you were involved with that people might remember? No, I doubt it. I mean, not <laughs> unless you were regional. <laughs> if you're regional in, in the Southeast, maybe. You know, the budgets that I had to work with were small, so I couldn't get any of the A-listers, you mm -hmm. know. Um, I, but one of the last ones I did, uh, a commercial uh, series I did, was for Comcast, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with Comcast, yeah, yeah. but you know, mm -hmm. they had this mega agency in New York. They would produce these commercials for like $2 million, $3 million, but they didn't apply to the Southeast. So the agency that ran it in the Southeast hire, would hire me and they would say, we want you to take this $2 million commercial and produce it for a quarter of a million dollars. So it would be like, okay, how, how am I supposed to do that? And they, well, I, we, don't, we don't know how you're supposed to do it, but that's, if you want the job, this is what you have to do. So in order to get actors on there, I would have to find like B-listers or C-listers or even D-listers of actors, people that you would look at and you'd go, I know that person, but I don't know where, you know? Um, so the last, one of the last series I did was with John Schneider. Uh, if, if you might not know the name, but John Schneider was with the Dukes of Hazard. He was Bo Duke from the Dukes of Hazard show. So I reached out online to a, um, fan site uh, on online, uh, a, a uh, Dukes of Hazard site. I said, hey, does anybody, I know y'all are fans, does anybody know how I could possibly connect with John Schneider? I've got a, a proposal for him for a set of TV commercials. Well, five minutes later, my phone rings and it's his manager. <laughs> we can... and, uh, yeah, he says, uh, yeah. hey, I saw your Facebook uh, post. Uh, tell me what it's all about and how much he's going to get paid. So lo and behold, we got John Schneider to show up. And, you know, I pictured him to show up with his entourage, you know, six or seven people, his handlers. It's just him. He just pulls up in his car with a bunch of suits over his shoulder and said, let me know if any of these work. <laughs> and, and we became friends over, I don't know, we, we shot for like three days and I had just finished. I, well, actually, no, my book had been out for about four or five years. But I, I showed him my book and said, I want you, I, I would love for you to be I want to produce, I want to make this a, 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 either a made-for-TV or a, a movie. He, so he was reading through it, and he said, you know, I'd love to do this. He said, but I, I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I'm doing this. And he said, but, you know, maybe, you know, down the road. And, and he suggested some other people that, that could also be in the, in the movie. But, of course, it, it, never, it never happened. But it was fun working with him. But, yeah, as far as, you know, big-time national, uh, most of the stuff I did, did was regional uh, commercial work. When did you start writing songs? Oh, uh, I actually started back in the early 80s uh, writing. Um, and, and I think it's like most writers, at least, well, guys and girls. I mean, look at Taylor Swift. You write when you have a broken heart or somebody does you wrong or you, or you are pining for somebody who doesn't pay you attention. That's a real good impetus to write a song. And, uh, and one of the first songs I wrote... Uh, was called It's a Mystery. It got regional airplay. It, it got on radio stations in, in the Atlanta area, but it, uh, it didn't break out. But it was written about a girl that I had, had wanted to date and had gone out with a couple of times and now she was with somebody else. And, and, and it, it, the whole thing was about being, uh, I'm in love, I'm not in love, I hate you, I love you, uh, you're a mystery, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And the cool thing about it was I wrote that song in 82 and about flash forward to about two, three years ago, uh, I went into the studio in Nashville every once a year. I go into the studio in a studio in Nashville. My son uh, lives in Nashville. He's a drummer. And uh, thanks to me, I corrupted him at an early age. And uh, he's also in the music industry. <laughs> he worked for ASCAP. And uh, my youngest son, it plays trombone. My wife plays keyboard. So once a year we go into Nashville and we'll cut, I'll take a four or five songs of my favorites, usually from the seventies 
and um, we'll go in with them, my, my family, and about seven uh, musicians that are all my, my oldest son's age. They're all in their mid-20s. And all these songs are songs they've never heard of before. You know, it's kind of funny. You know, I grew up listening to this stuff, but, but they're so good at their instrument. They all majored in their instruments. You know, there's, we've got horns and, and, and strings, and we've got keyboards and uh, background vocals. And it's just fun to go in there and do that. So uh, that song, It's a Mystery, we went in. And recut, I cut it again from the 1982. I brought it to to this um, millennium. Got horns behind it, and it was just fun to do. And what a what a complete circle I made uh, writing that song in '82 when I was pining for this girl. I don't think I can remember her last name now, but uh, but now here's my whole family in on the song. You mm-hmm. know. Uh, singing the song. So it, you know, came full circle. And we're going back in Nashville. Actually, we're going back in July. We're going to cut about six songs that I've, again, cherry picked. Um, I Like, uh, we're going to do How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees, Make Me Smile by Chicago. We're going to do Smoke From a Distant Fire. That was a big one hit wonder by the Sanford Townsend band. Songs like that. Uh, I just, just songs that I cherry picked that I, I know were within my range. Yes. And uh, that would be fun to do that have horns involved. And it's fun. I do it. I don't do it for money, obviously. I do it because I look at it kind of like a legacy. Uh, you know how when your dad, you know, made all the movies and took the Polaroids of you and, you know, now you look back and you reflect this to me is this is our legacy. So, you know, years from now when I'm gone and maybe their children or their children's children can look at these videos and go, wow, that's great grandpa up there. You know, that's pretty cool that you guys all got together and sang. So yeah, it's yeah. just fun. Oh, that's fabulous. Are there any of David's songs within your vocal range? You know, I, I've thought about it, but I have not had the guts to do it. <laughs> I'm afraid I will butcher it and, and, and I will get laughed off the planet. So I might do it one day. I, I just might do one of his songs. Yeah. Uh, I just don't, I don't know if I could do it justice. Yeah. He's got, again, he's got has one of those identifiable voices. You know how you hear some songs that people do cover versions and you go, that's just not good because all you can hear is the original because that voice is so identifiable. Those, those are songs that I don't really want to tackle. Yeah. Now, David recorded on his uh, Dreams album a song called Some Old Woman. Oh, and okay. I found the original by Bill Gibson who found Joan Baez and Judy Collins. That's cool. That's pretty cool. And I found his original recording. And you know, David is nothing like it. He stamped his authority on it. And Uh I did a podcast recently with John Baylor, who did all the vocal arrangements on the Partridge family and came up with the sound of the Partridge family. And he worked with David on his early solo work. He told me two things. One, David never believed he had a good voice. About that, yeah, he didn't. You know who else was like that? John Lennon. Yeah, you know, John Lennon double tracked all his vocals because he felt his voice wasn't strong enough. Isn't that something? Right. When you you think somebody like David, you know, and you think, wow, what a fantastic voice, and in their mind they have all these insecurities that they don't feel they're good enough. His voice, he said, I don't sound like anybody else. Well, that's That's, the key. That's a good thing. (laughs) Yes, That's that's the reason why you are unique. Exactly. And he made the songs his own. Like, uh, well, like you brought up with the Felix Cavallari, How Can I Be Sure? But that song, he, he not only made it his own, he changed the lyrics in a way too, you know, at the, at the end when he sings. Yeah, he doesn't use the last, the last line, I'll be sure with you. Yes, exactly. That's, yeah. He just repeats a stanza and, it, and then it fades out. And it's, to me, that's like, wow, that was a great idea. Because it's been recorded so, so many times, but it is a really hard song to sing because of oh, the range. It, you're absolutely right. Uh, I actually uh, did attempt one of Felix's songs in our last session, our last recording session in Nashville. Yeah. Um, I, I did A Girl Like You. And that, I don't know why I picked that song, I pick, I know why I picked it because I like it, but <laughs> but I didn't realize how hard it was to sing. Yeah, uh, because it has so many different ranges. It and so yeah, I I, I can understand that. Yeah, uh, that some people wouldn't want to tackle that song, but he he did a great job. Mm. He really did. Also, another of your influences or bands that you like are the Raspberries and Eric Carmen. Yeah, how did you remember that? Oh, my um, gosh, 
Um, I'm, I'm a huge raspberries fan. Yeah. And of course, when you say that, you, what you really mean, in essence, is you're a huge Eric Carmen fan because Eric wrote 95% yes. of their songs. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were one of these bright rock and roll. Here you go again. Here's a group that came out when they were in the time warp. Uh, they came out doing music uh, uh, that sounded like the Who and the Beatles and the Stones and at a time when punk rock was coming out. And, and glitter rock was big. And so their music was brilliant, but it was at the wrong time. Mm. And this another case where Eric Carmen is recognized by other musicians as being a g- very gifted songwriter, but could not break out of that teen dumb band Raspberries pop group. He, he did manage, I will say this, he, you know, uh, like all by myself, he, the songs that he wrote like that, he was able to break out to some extent, uh, Never Gonna Fall in Love Again. He had a series of hits in the 80s, but for the most part, the band itself were so talented, they just could not get out of that mold. And, and they, let, they let the record company say, okay, you're a teen band, you're a teen idol band, we're going to put you on Teen Beat and Tiger Beat and all these magazines, and the girls are going to go crazy for you. And they thought, wow, yeah, we're going to get all this stardom. And then they thought, wait a minute, we're serious musicians here. We're, we're writing some decent stuff and could not get arrested. But yes, I'm a big Eric Carmen. As a matter of fact, one of the songs I'm going to be recording in July is an Eric Carmen song. It's not a real well-known one of his. <clears throat> Excuse me. He, uh, it's, it's called It Hurts Too Much. Oh, and yeah. are you familiar with that song? Yeah, yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's got a lot of orchestra arrangement. In it. It's very Phil Spector-ish, mm. uh, a lot of reverb and castanets and background vocal. I mean, it's, it's a really big sound. Um, so I thought, what the heck? I'm going to do it. No one's, I don't think anyone's ever covered this song. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take a stab at it. And if it sucks, I just won't release it. <laughs> but, but my goal is to record it and then try to get Eric's attention and just say, Hey, I, I did this because I, I like your music so much. And, you know, recently, as of about a week ago, one of the songs I cut the last time in Nashville was mm-hmm. a song uh, um, uh, by a group called Player. And it, yes. was, it was their second hit. They had, their first hit was um, Baby Come Back. Yeah. And that was a number one hit in 1977, 78. Then they had a follow-up hit, which was a top 10 hit called uh, uh, This Time I'm In It For Love. Mm-hmm. So I, I recorded that version. We went in and cut that. And, uh, you know, did a, I, every time I do music in Nashville, we, we also video. So we, we do a video to go with it because you have to do that nowadays, you know, yeah. and I uh, put it on YouTube and I put it on my Facebook page about three weeks ago. It's been out for, I think, 2019. I cut it. All of a sudden, I get this message from a guy and he says, I just want to let you know, I really liked your version. You know, I always if somebody takes the time out to tell me that I always go back to him and say, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So I did. And he came back to me, and goes, oh, yeah. And by the way, I wrote it. <laughs> and so I went what? You know, so I, then I immediately wrote him back and I said, oh, I, I, that really means a lot to me now that you, you know, not only like it, but that you wrote the song. He said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I played it for my co-writing partner who also wrote the song and he, he thought you did a really good job. So, so I was just, you know, to the moon on that. To me, that's the ultimate compliment. If if the guy wrote the song tells you that he likes your verse. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned about idols just now and mm. how Eric Carmen and the Raspberries, you know, ha- found it difficult to break free of that image that had been planted on them. Peter Frampton managed it. Yeah. You see, I can remember him in 1968 when he was the face of 68. He was in the herd and yes. they plastered him, his face, this pretty boy, all over the teen magazines and he hated it. <laughs> and yet when Frampton comes alive is released transformed in that one instant yeah uh, i didn't know him as a singular player i didn't know anything about the teen part yeah. before that I, I i didn't find him until humble pie right and, right. and, and then after that of course frampton comes alive which to oh. me goes down in the history as an anomaly to itself the fact that a live album of music nobody had ever heard of or it really i mean he he did put the music out before yeah. the live album, but yeah. it wasn't until the live album that everybody heard it. Yeah. And the live album became so huge, blew him away. He, yeah. he was shocked. You know, when I, I grew up listening to the, to the Beatles, I thought every person from England talked like that. <laughs> I thought they all had the Liverpudlian accent. And, uh, and I remember 
uh, once way back in my youth, I was, I worked at a jewelry store and I had this English woman uh, as a customer. And I thought I was being complimentary. Uh, and after the sale, I said, I, by the way, I love your accent. And she looked at me and she said, my dear boy, you are the one with the accent. I am speaking correctly. And I never forgot that. <laughs> well, you're probably right. You're speaking the Queen's English. I'm just speaking yeah. English. Just to f- finish up here, have you got some dates lined up for any forthcoming shows with your tribute bands? Wow, you're throwing me a curve. I do. Um, it's all, you know, only if you're in the Southeast area, specifically in the Atlanta area. But yes, we're yeah. playing about six shows. Let's see. Our next show is 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 May 22nd at the beautiful Gem Theater in beautiful Calhoun, Georgia. The, these theaters that now have live music for, for bands like ours are all these uh, renovated theaters from the 40s and 50s. They're gorgeous. They have the crushed floor seats and the, the draping, uh, draping, and it's, it's really, they're beautiful places. So yeah, we're playing there. Um, we're doing a, a really cool show um, in um, July. Is it July? Yes. I can't remember the date. I think it's July 3rd. It's at the Innovations Amphitheater, which is in a a city called Winder, Georgia. That's an outdoor amphitheater. It holds around 2,000 people. And we're doing a double show with another tribute band that is a Rolling Stones tribute band. So I always say, if you've ever wanted to see the Rolling Stones and the Doobie Brothers in the same show, this is the place to be. (laughs) So yeah, we, we pretty much play pretty regular now. And now that the COVID is starting to get past us, uh, we're starting to get booked for a lot more shows. So yeah. um, we're, we're, on, uh, we're on Facebook. It's called Brotherhood. The band is called Brotherhood. And so if you're into the doobies and uh, you want to check us out, if you go to our Facebook page, you'll see all the dates that we're, we're playing the upcoming shows. Now, I appreciate you uh, mentioning that. Perfect plug. Check what? is in the mail. <laughs> what should people listen to in an attempt to understand genius of david cassidy Mm. that's a that's a good question my first initial response is to say just google him youtube him listen to anything uh there's so much uh that's out there Uh, his live music his live shows really capture his essence i think Uh, more so than some of his recorded material because you get to actually hear him for who he is you know a lot of artists today they're putting all kinds of stuff on their vocals you know uh, very rarely do you hear anything that is not auto-tuned today, at least a little bit. But back then, they didn't have that stuff. Uh, when you're hearing David, when you're watching him live or hearing his recorded music, that's him. That's what he sounded like. Um, no auto-tune going on there. And for a guy who felt insecure about his voice, you'll be blown away. If you don't know of his music outside of I Think I Love You, you really do need to go a little bit deeper in his catalog and of course, my favorite again is the higher they climb, the harder they fall. Uh, if you listen to that, you're going to hear a little bit of everything that David did from rock and roll to ballad uh, and every, everything in between. It, it really shows his range, I think, uh, to the point where you will say, I had no idea. Where do you rate him in the history of American music? Where do I rank him? Yes. Oh, it's tough. I, I don't know if I'd necessarily put a mark on it, but I would say he is definitely an artist to be reckoned with. When you think of the music of the 70s and the 80s, it is hard not to, if, you're, if you are a music aficionado, it's hard not to put him in with all the greats. It's unfortunate that he's not being thought that way. Probably won't ever get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, although that would be great. But then again, look at all the artists that aren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet that should be. But that being aside, I'd say that if, if you like, if you're a deeper music fan than the casual fan, you owe it to yourself to give his music a listen outside of what you know of him. It will make you smile because you won't realize uh, what he brought to the table until you listen to it. I think that's a perfect accolade. Thank you, Louise. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And, and one last thing, if you're listening to this, buy Louise Poynton's book. I'm not kidding. Buy Cherish. You will not regret it. Thank you very much. It's you're been, welcome. Thank you, Louise. It's been a pleasure. 
yeah. been a pleasure. Hope to talk with you again real soon. You take care of yourself. You huh? too. Okay. See you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye. If you have enjoyed today's episode, why not tell your friends? Share on social media, click the button, subscribe for free, so you can catch up on all previous shows and be the first to know when new ones are released.